here's what New King James, I'm reading from New King James, says, For which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Verse 6, that's the verse we're going to talk about today. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he say, let all the angels of God worship him. Let's read that verse one more time all together, because that's what we're going to be talking about today. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Verse 7, and of the angels he say, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers flames of fire, but to the Son he says, your throne, O God, is forever and forevermore. A specter of righteousness is a specter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And, that's another quote, you, Lord, in the beginning have laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And, you, uh, and they all will grow old like a garment. Like a clock, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years shall never fail. Amen? Such an amazing, comforting thought about who Jesus is. Amen? He, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 13. Uh, and to which of the angels he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Uh, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Amen or deliverance. So we've been talking about Hebrews for six weeks now. This is week number six and we're in verse six. So a little bit slow, but hopefully we'll pick up speed sometime. Um, Again, the whole point is that the book of Hebrews was written to uh, Jewish people who converted to Christianity. And after they converted to Christianity, they wanted to go back to Judaism. So the author of Hebrews wrote them this book to tell them not to do it. And the first 10 chapters, almost the whole 10 chapters, he's arguing for the superiority of Christ, the superiority of the New Testament over the Old Testament. And then he's driving some life application for the readers, how they can live their lives based on that, and they should stick with Christ and not go back. We are in chapter 1, the first uh, three verses. Um, we, uh, the first four verses, well, three verses, it talks about how Christ is superior to the prophet. The message is superior, that's verse 1 to verse 2a. Then the messenger is superior, that's verse 2b to verse 3. We said verse 4 is kind of like a transitional thing. And last week, um, we started from that, in that part, from verse 5 to verse 14. In verse 5, the author of Hebrews started arguing that Jesus is superior than the angels. Um, and then till the end of that chapter, verse 14, where we stopped, he's using the Old Testament to argue that Jesus is superior than the angels. So it is demonstrated by his old from the Old Testament. And then he starts chapter 2 by his first warning to the Hebrews, don't go back. And there's five uh, warnings throughout the book. That's the first one in chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. And then he goes back to pick up his argument that Jesus is superior than the angels or to the angels. And that is demonstrated by his humanity when he became lower than the angels. And then he was lifted far much higher than the angels. 
In verses, in chapter 1, verse 5 to 7, the author of Hebrews is quoting seven different scriptures from the Old Testament to support his argument from the Old Testament that Jesus is superior than the angels. Amen? Let's read these seven together or just highlight them. Number one, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The second quote is, um, the first quote is from Psalm 2. Second quote, I will be his father or I'll be to him a father and he shall be my son. And that's a quote from 1 Samuel, I think chapter 7. And we talked about this last week or last time we talked from Hebrews, how Jesus is superior because he has inherited a superior name than the angels. The third quote, which we're going to discuss right here, uh, let all the angels of God worship him. The, th the fourth quote, um, it says, verse 7 here to the angel, he said, who makes his angel spirit and his ministers flames of fire. That's number four. Number five in verse eight, your throne, O God. That's a, a quote from Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and forevermore. And then the sixth quote is in verse 10. You, Lord, in the beginning have laid the foundation of the earth. That's from Psalm 102. And then seventh quote is verse 13. When God said to the Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110.1. So these are the seven quotes that the author of Hebrews quoted from the Old Testament to back up his argument that Jesus is superior than the angels, even from the Old Testament. And there is at least four arguments that he's presenting here by quoting these seven scriptures from the Old Testament. Number one, that the son has superior name. We talked about that in verse four and five, that Jesus has inherited the name, the messianic son of God, because that is God's stamp of approval on his salvation that Jesus has accomplished on the cross. That was two weeks ago. Today, we're going to stop here at verse 6. Jesus is superior than the angels because he receives worship from the angels. Amen? How many of you guys would agree that if somebody worships, if person A worships person B, then person B is definitely much greater than person A. Amen? That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. And then the third argument is Jesus is God in his nature. And that's what we're going to be talking about next week from verse 7 to verse 12. And then Jesus is superior than the angels because he's the master. He's the Lord, but they are servants. And that's what we're going to read from verse 13 to verse 14. So let's, let's pause here at verse 6 today. And this is what the author of Hebrews said. But which of the angels again... Uh, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he say, let all the angels of God worship him. Let's break it down a little bit. The first, this, this verse is probably one of the hardest in the New Testament. It's really, really difficult to try to get to the very thought of the author of Hebrews and what he's trying to tell us here. Let's start with the, the actual event when it says that he, when he brings the firstborn into the world. What, what is the author of Hebrews talking about here? Okay, well, there is two possibilities depending on how you translate that verse and how you understand that verse. Um, it's either talking about Jesus coming in the first time and the angels worshipped him. Or he's talking about Jesus coming for the second time to, to rule, and that's when the angels will worship him. It's really going to come down to where you put that word again that we just uh, was reading in verse 6. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says. Where does this word again goes? Because that will make a little bit of a difference in the meaning. 
A lot of translations started by saying, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, okay? And that's like the NIV and the ESV. And when they say, and again, when he brings the firstborn into this world and start with the word again, then you're contrasting that verse, verse six right here to the very beginning of verse five. So verse five, it says this, for which of the angels he ever said, you are my son, okay? And then you skip to verse six, and again, the idea here is, and again, to which of the angels he ever said, um, and again, to back up his argument that Jesus is superior, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. You guys follow me? Okay, so if we start with the word again, as the NIV and the, uh, the other translations, then it contrasting verse six with verse five. And the idea here is that the author of Hebrews is keep listing uh, verses from the Old Testament that indicates the superiority of Christ. Another way of understanding verse 6 is this, like the New King James here. It says, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, when you shift the word again to the middle, now he's talking about the firstborn coming back into the world. You guys follow me? You follow the difference between the two understanding? You're with me? Okay. So if we understand it as the NIV and the ESV that, uh, and again, you know, when the first born enter into the world, he say, let all the angels of God worship him. The door is now open to either the author of Hebrews were referring to the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ to reign, right? If we understand the word again to be in the middle, when he brings again the firstborn into the world, it's definitely meaning here that he's talking about the second coming of Christ to reign. He, that the, the first coming is not even in the picture. You guys with me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, it's a little bit hard, so I want to make sure you understand me. You're, you're with me, correct? Yeah. I think, I personally think that this is actually about the second coming of Christ. Why do I believe that? Because we already have all the events that happened when Jesus came the first time and we don't see anything documented in the Bible that the angels of God worshipped him. Yes, they celebrated the birth of Christ, right, when he was born. But we don't see an event where the, actually the angels are worshipping him. That's why I'm leaning toward more toward that the firstborn coming into this world is, is, is more of a reference to Jesus coming on his second coming to establish his kingdom on earth. And then every knee will bow to him, including those of the angels. You guys with me? Yeah. So the, the firstborn entering into this world, it's most likely a reference to the second coming of Christ to reign and establish his kingdom. And now... How is the author of Hebrews describing Christ here? He's saying that when, not the Son of God or the Christ or Jesus, he said, when the firstborn come again into this world. Amen? And this is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus were referred to with an absolute the firstborn. All right? We see that Jesus is... Um, he is the firstborn among his brethren, as in Romans 8.29. He's the firstborn of God's creation in Colossians 1.15. He's the firstborn from the dead in Colossians 3.18 and Revelation 1.5. So the fact that Jesus is the firstborn is mentioned so many other times in the New Testament. But every other time is modified by adding something to it to explain to us that he is the firstborn in regard to that group. You guys with me? Regard to the dead, regard to his brethren, regarding to, in regard to creation. But this is the only time in the New Testament where we see 
their firstborn being a title of Christ himself. Just, just his title. Mm. He is their firstborn. Amen? So let's talk about this for a minute. What does the firstborn mean? Because the firstborn can be a little bit confusing. And uh, Jehovah Witness, among other people, used that title to, to teach that Jesus was created as the first created being ever. And then the Father and Jesus created the whole world after that. And they used that title, firstborn, to, to indicate that. And from, from their perspective, it makes sense. Micah is my firstborn. What does that mean? That Micah was begotten first, right? And then came uh, Kazia and then came Selah. So if Jesus in the same manner is the firstborn, that means God begotten Jesus first. And then after that, God created everything else. So Jesus is definitely from that perspective begotten, started at some point by God. And then, you know, he just happened to be the first one in the chronological event of creation. You guys with me? Yeah. So is that true? Is that what the Bible really tell us when they call Jesus is the firstborn? No. The answer is no. The firstborn obviously is used in the scripture to describe somebody who's born first, who has superiority in time. Like he, he, was, he came to existence first and then people came after him. And that's a very common use of the word in the Bible. So there is no argument here. However, there are so many other times in the scripture where the word firstborn does not indicate superiority in time. It indicates superiority in nature or superiority in rank. You guys with me? Yeah. I'll show you many examples. Reuben, that's the first son of uh, Jacob, right? He has 12, 12 sons. And Reuben defiled his father's bed and slept with his father's concubine. And he lost his rights as a firstborn because of that. But when Reuben lost this first right as the firstborn, surprisingly, that the rights of the firstborn did not go to the second son, which is Simon. As a matter of fact, it went to Joseph, who was number 11 among Jacob's children. You guys with me? And we read that in 1 Chronicles 5.1, that the, first, the, 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 the firstborn rights or the advantage of being the firstborn now came all the way to the 11th kid, not the second kid. Because the firstborn here means the one who's superior more than the one who chronologically came to existence before his brethren. You guys with me? And that's what happened. All the brethren worshipped Joseph when he was in Egypt. They all bowed the knee before him. He was superior than all his brethren. Another example, Exodus 4, 22. Now God is telling Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Does that mean that God has begotten Israel first, and then God has begotten the rest of the nations? No. What does Israel being the firstborn mean? That means Israel is the one that has superiority in God's plan over the rest of the nations. Amen? Psalm 89, 27 to 28. Now God is speaking about David and he said, I shall him make him my firstborn. And what does the firstborn here means? Right after it explains it. That what? The first of the kings of the earth, right? The highest, the highest or the first? The highest. the highest. It is not the first. It is the highest. Obviously, David wasn't the first king chronologically, not even the first king in the nation of Israel because Saul came before him, right? So to say that David was the firstborn king literally doesn't say that he's chronolo chronologically the first, but he's really the highest among all the kings. Amen? 
Jeremiah 31, 9, they shall come with weeping and with supplication, and I will lead them, and I will cause them to walk in my um, by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Again, Ephraim is not number one in the nation of Israel in terms of birth. Obviously, Ephraim was the superior one, the son of Joseph that God wanted to bless. So again, do you see over and over and over again that the firstborn, it does mean sometimes the one who was born first, but usually it means somebody who's ranked in, highest in rank, not, not superior in rank, not superior in time. Amen? Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he has also predestined and he uh, to be confirmed to the very image of his son that he might be firstborn among many brethren. So Jesus is our firstborn in relation to us. Obviously, that doesn't mean that God has begotten Jesus, then he has begotten us in the same manner he has begotten Jesus. That is totally different, right? When we say Jesus is the firstborn among the Christian, that means he's the one who's superior among all the believers of the New Testament. Amen? Now, Colossians 1.18, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Again, Jesus was not the first person who was raised from the dead, right? We've seen many people being raised from the dead in the Old Testament. Even the moment Jesus died, the Bible said that tombs were opened and many dead people came out of the graves. So the very moment Jesus died, there was a lot of resurrection. So Jesus was not chronologically the first person who was raised from the dead. Amen? But there is a difference. Jesus never went back to die. Unlike everybody else who was raised from the dead, they all died again. Amen? Jesus rose and he's alive once and for all. And in that manner, he's the firstborn among the dead because he's superior. His resurrection is superior than all those who died. Amen? And finally here, um, there's a lot of examples but proves the point. Uh, Hebrews 12, uh, the very end of the chapter, the very end of the book, we read about a church of firstborns, plural. That all the Christians, all the New Testament believers, they're all firstborn in their own rights. Amen? So like, I'm God's firstborn, Karen is God's firstborn, Barb is God's firstborn. We're all equal in that manner. We're all God's firstborn. Amen? Doesn't make sense because we're not talking about being chronologically Superior. We're talking about being highest in rank, highly favored by God. Amen? We're all favored in the same manner. We're all the firstborn of God. So when we say that Jesus is the firstborn, unlike Jehovah's Witness or anybody else who denies the deity of Christ, they say, oh, that means he was begotten first. Not, not true. It just means that he is superior than everybody else. Amen? The most difficult one really is Colossians 1.15. When Paul said that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this one is a bit tricky, and that's why we're going to look into it a little bit more. Amen? When Paul called Jesus the firstborn of creation, what does that mean? Did Paul try to tell us that Jesus was created first, and then everything else was created after him? Let's look into that context. First, Colossians, I'm sorry, Colossians 1, 15 to 18. Here is what Paul said about Jesus, who is the image of, of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him. Now, I'm going to describe it as we go, so this way we don't have to read it and then go over it again. After Paul said that Jesus is the firstborn of every creature, what is the very first word after that? For, right? 
And we talked about this before. The word for means that what is, what is coming behind it going to explain what happened before it, right? So what does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn of every creature? Here it is. Here is Paul's very own definition. For after him all things were created. Is that correct? Is it after him? By him. So when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, is not talking about Jesus being chronologically created before everything else. If that was Paul's intention, he should have said, for after him, everything was created. You guys with me? The very idea that Jesus is the firstborn is that he is the head. He is the, the one who has the superiority over everything that is created. That's why it says that he is by him everything was created. He is the creator. And that's the very definition of him being the firstborn. You guys with me? Uh, everything that is created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether are thrones, dominions, or principles, or powers, all things were created after him, right? By him and for him. Now, this is just, if this by him and for him doesn't tell you that Jesus is God in his very essence and his very nature. I don't know what else will tell you, right? Imagine that everything was created not just by Jesus, but also for Jesus. This is a mind-blowing statement, amen? This is only something that you can only say about God, amen? And he is before all things. And notice... When Paul talks here about Jesus, he said that he is before all things. He used the verb to be, to, to self-exist, right? It didn't say for he was created before or before all things. Amen? It says he is before all things. He's self-existing before all things. You guys with me? So the, the argument just falls on its face flat once you just actually read the text and see what Paul is actually saying. For he is not he was created before all things. And by him, again, all things consists. Amen? And he is the head uh, of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, firstborn from the dead doesn't mean that he's chronologically the first one who was raised from the dead. In the same way, we should understand him being the firstborn of creation, that he's not chronologically the first one who is being created. You guys with me? That in all things, here is the conclusion of everything Paul is trying to tell us about Jesus being the firstborn of God's creation. That in all things he might have preeminence. That Jesus might be superior over everything. And that's the whole point of this passage. Paul is trying to emphasize not that Jesus came to existence first. He's just trying to demonstrate Jesus' superiority over everything that is created because he is the creator. That's why he described Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. Amen? Yes. Don't let Jehovah Witness play games with you. Amen? God's word is so powerful, you need to know the text. So, yeah, that's the whole point here. When we say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, we're not saying that Jesus was created first. Nobody says that. The Bible doesn't say that. It just says that Jesus is the superior over everything that was ever created because he is the creator. You guys with me? Yeah. Let's move on to the second part. So, when, the first, when again the firstborn will enter into the world... 
this scripture will be fulfilled. He says from the Old Testament, let all the angels of God worship him. There's a small problem with that quote from the Old Testament. It's actually not in the Old Testament. If you have your Bible with you, you try to find this phrase, it's just not there. And that's the problem. So what is the author of Hebrews talking about here? Where is he quoting this from? Well, there's two options here. The first option is he was alluding, he was referencing, but not quoting word for word, Psalm 79 verse 7. When it says, the psalmist said, Worship him, all you gods. And that's a reference to the angels. They were called Elohim, gods. And uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, says, Worship him, all you angels. So that's Psalm um, 97 verse 7. The author of Hebrews can probably referring to this, but most likely he's actually referring to a different verse that can also only be found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but it's not going to be found in your uh, Old Testament that you have in your hand. You guys with me? That is from uh, Deuteronomy 32 verse 43. Um, so our Old Testament Bible is based on the Hebrew text. And if you remember, we talked about this before, our Hebrew text was collected on the 10th century, right? So that's way after Christ. But there's no need here to assume that the Hebrew scholars who collected that text were, have any malice or in, any intent to manipulate God's word. They're very sincere people, and they did their very best to collect that Hebrew text. And that is called the MT, the Masoretic text, which we have in our hands right now. That is what we have to translate our English Bibles. But way before that was the Septuagint, right? That's the Greek translation that was done even before Christ was born. And the Septuagint has an extended version of that verse, verse Deuteronomy 32:43, that really reads, it's in the footnote, if you skip down all the way down, footnote 5, number B, the Septuagint reads, Rejoice ye heaven with him, and let all the angels of God, or the sons of God, worship him. And it goes on and on. That part is not in our Hebrew Bible, but in the Septuagint. And if you guys remember, I hope I'm not losing you, but if you guys remember, we say that the author of Hebrews relied on the Septuagint as his main Old Testament text whenever he wrote the book of Hebrews. You guys remember that? So, it, yes, he can be referring to, referring to Psalm 97 verse 7, but most likely he's referring to what we found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, not in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the extended version of Deuteronomy 32 verse uh, 43. Now, it says here, let all the angels of God do what? Worship him. It doesn't matter which verse actually the author of Hebrews were referring to. Was he referring to Psalm 97 verse 7? Or he was referring to Deuteronomy 32 verse 43? Either one of these two verses in the original Hebrew setting is actually talking about the angels worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel. Amen? You guys with me? Either one of these two verses, the, author, the, the, the Old Testament is talking about the angels worshiping God. But the author of Hebrews has no problem quoting that verse in which the angels are worshiping God. And he's applying that to Jesus, the Son. And say, when the Son enter into this world the second time for his reign... All the angels of God worship him. And he took a words that can only be ascribed to God. And he said, this is actually about Jesus. You guys with me? This is awesome. Amen. So the author of Hebrew has no problem whatsoever taking words that is talking about God and saying, oh, no, no, no. This is actually about the son, not about the father. Amen. 
So let's talk about this. Because if you talk to a Jehovah Witness again and say, Hey, look at this. The angels of God worship him. Doesn't that say that Jesus is God? They might come back at you and say, Not so fast. And they might have a good argument here. So let's look into that. Amen? So the word worship, obviously, is um, literally in Greek, it means to, to, to show uh, reverence or to, um, you know, kiss somebody in honor. That's really to bow the knee, bend the knee in front of somebody. And obviously, this word, in, in, for the most part, is, is a description of an act that can only be done to God, right? Jesus himself said that in Luke when uh, Satan was tempting him, and Satan said, just worship me, and then I'll give you all these kingdoms. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, get, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you should serve. So when, when Satan asked Jesus to worship him, Jesus said, no, no, I can never do that. The act of worship belongs only to God. You guys with me? As a matter of fact, we see that Peter, for example, who was the leader of the church, refused when Cornelius bowed before him and wanted to worship him. We see that in Acts 25, 36. When Cornelius fell down at Peter's feet and worshipped him, Peter said, the Bible said, lifted him up, saying, stand up, I myself am also a man. And that's Acts uh, 10, 25 to 36. So men of God refused worship. Angels refused worship as well. Revelation 22, 8 to 9. John bowed before the angel, and we read this in the, uh, Revelation 22, 8 to 9. I, John, am the one who heard it and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things, but he said to me, what? Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, uh, the prophets, and of those you heed the word of this book, worship God. So the angels refused worship and say, don't do that, worship God. So you have men of God refused worship like Peter. Angels refused worship in, in, in Revelation 22. Jesus, on the other hand, during his ministry on earth, 10 times accepted worship from people. People will come to him, bow the knee, and in a way show him honor that as if they're worshiping him, and we don't see Jesus ever objecting to that. Amen? Amen. However, if you're a Jehovah Witness, you grew up not believing that Jesus is not God, these 10 incidences when people bowed the knee before Christ during his ministry is not really a solid indication of his deity. It doesn't show us for sure that we should understand these incidences in, in, an, in a way that Jesus was God who's accepting worship. Why? Why I'm saying this? Because the exact same Greek word that used to describe people worshiping Jesus during his ministry on earth, it literally can mean bow the knee. And we can see this exact same Greek word also applied to men. Like, for example, it's one incidence in the New Testament. In Matthew 18, 26, we see it's a parable, I think Jesus was saying, and the servant came and he bowed the knee before the king. It's the exact same Greek word, worship. And even in the Septuagint, the Old Testament, the Greek word uh, for worship or bow the knee was referred to men multiple times, few incidences. I listed a couple here where people bow the knee before a fellow human being and that exact green word is worship. Amen? You guys with me? Amen. So, 
For you and me who believe that Jesus is God, we can see how Jesus accepting worship in the light of the fact that Jesus said you should only worship God is an indication for his, for his deity. However, if you're a Jehovah Witness or somebody who doesn't believe that Jesus is God, I can see they have a good argument there and you cannot, as a Christian, tell them, hey, people came to Jesus and worshiped him, therefore he's God. No, that's a weak argument. Don't use it. It's not really persuasive because the word is not exclusive to God. It has also be, been used by Amen. Amen. You guys with me? However, however, having said that, the Bible used the word worship in an ultimate sense. Not just a man showing honor to another man, but like uh, in a way showing honor to God. The word was used three times to show that Jesus is being worshipped the same way God is worshipped. Amen? So if you want to argue that Jesus is God because he took worship, use one of these three examples. Don't use the examples when Jesus accepted worship during his earthly life. Amen? You guys with me? So let's look into these three incidences where Jesus, the Bible ascribed worship to God the same way it ascribes worship to the Father. There's one incident here, but I didn't, uh, didn't document it. In John chapter 5, Jesus said that all should honor the Father just as they honor they all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's in John chapter 5, okay? So Jesus himself said, everybody should honor me the same way they honor the Father. The, same, the word for honor is, I would take it the same thing for worship. When you worship someone, you honor that person. Amen? So Jesus himself declared that he, yay, I have no problem you worship me or honor me the same way you, you honor God, the creator of everything. Amen? So that's one number one. But let's look at these three incidences. The first one is the one that we're just reading right here. Remember we say that the author of Hebrews took verses in the Old Testament that talks about angels worshiping God himself and he applied these verses to Jesus himself. Amen? So this is not just about showing respect or just honoring somebody. This is an act of worship that can only be applied to God, yet the author of Hebrews taking that, applying it to Christ and saying, hey, in the same manner the angels should worship the Father, they also should worship the Son. You guys with me? You cannot argue that here they're just honor, showing honor or respect to Jesus. This is an act of worship that can only belong to God. Amen? Another incident in Philippians 2, 10 to 11. Here is what Paul said. He said that at the name of Jesus, ultimately at the end of time, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and of those who are in heaven and those who are on earth and those who are under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Now, that's an act of worship that can only be ascribed to God. Amen? As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, Paul here was directly quoting Isaiah 45.23. When God himself spoke in Isaiah 45.23 and he said this, I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return to that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. Amen? So that's God speaking in Isaiah 45, 23. Paul took the exact words that God spoke about himself and he applied it straight to Christ and he said, oh, wait a minute. Actually, the one who's speaking in Isaiah 45 is Jesus, not the Father. Amen? Amen. 
And finally, at the end of time, in Revelation 5, 8 to 14, we read this. Um, now, when he had taken the scroll and the four living creature and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, um, which are the prayer of the saints. And they all sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and every people and nation. And you have made us kings and priests to God. God, our Father, and you shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them were 10,000 times 10,000. You do the math. Amen. And thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature uh, which are in heaven and on earth and under the earth as such as are in the sea and all that, it, that are in them, I heard them saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and forevermore. Amen? Do you see this? The one who is sitting on the throne is the Father. Yet, verse, um, the last verse we were just reading, it says this. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and equally belong to who? To the Lamb. The Lamb of God is the one who receives equal worship just like God himself. Amen? You guys with me? So if you're going to talk about what is, use one of those. Don't use the incidences when Jesus received worship during his life on earth. Amen? But again, when the firstborn comes into the world, he say, Lord, all the angels of God worship him. Amen? Amen. Let's close our eyes and pray.